On episode 75 of DevTalk, I speak to Peter Fries about Firebase and SwiftUI. Welcome to another episode of DevTalk. My name is Kerry Lothrop, and today's guest is Peter Friese. Peter is a developer advocate at Google. We used to work together at Zulke, but that was like maybe six years ago. And uh, he, is, he has since joined the, the Google force, and I'm really happy to have him on the show. Hello, Peter. Hey, Kerry. It's good Long to be here. Long time no see. Oh, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I, am, you know, I don't even recall when I saw you last in person. I think must have been at some conference, probably, right? I think it was at the the conference we talked about most on this podcast was the the Xamarin Evolve conference in 2016, where you were also a speaker. Yeah, but you were already at Google, and you were talking. What were you talking about back then? Um, so I think I've been at Evolve two times, and That's right, I yeah. so I think one one time I I talked about uh, Google service in general. And the other time we talked about Android Wear. Yeah. Ah, okay. And so you're a developer advocate. Uh, So we've had a couple of developer advocates on this show, mostly from Microsoft. So so that means you're the person who supports people who want to develop with the Google platform in general, right? Yeah, that's correct. So I'm not the only developer advocate on the Firebase team. So we've got a number of uh, folks on my team who focus on different platforms. And um, so, but yeah, you're you're right. I am one of those people who help other people build better apps. We see our role as a two-way communication channel. So um, we tell people about the new things that are coming up. And um, or maybe even older things that they might not be aware of. And also, we listen to their needs and um, the issues they run into and make them digestible to our development and engineering teams to make um, our users' lives better. Yes, and you mentioned something that I hadn't already mentioned, which is you're on the Firebase team. And Firebase is something we haven't talked about at all on this podcast. And so I was wondering if you could give me the the elevator pitch uh, for those who have maybe heard of it, but don't really know what it is. Sure. So Firebase basically is Google's mobile and web application platform, development platform. So it runs on Google infrastructure. So every Firebase project that you create automatically is a Google Cloud project. Mm -hmm. And we have a number of services that you can use. And essentially, you can, you know, if you want to build a mobile app these days, um, you pick your your runtime platform of choice, so Android or iOS or the web. And then our goal is to provide all the services that you need to make your application run. Um, It's basically um, a BAS platform. Um, And some of the services that we have are Firestore, which is a NoSQL um, database. We've got Cloud Storage for storing larger files. There's Mm -hmm. Cloud Functions, which is a serverless compute platform. And then there are services for uh, you know, monitoring, releasing, and uh, driving engagements with users. So it's it's across all different life cycles of an application, and we, uh, we we are striving to make the development process as fun and enjoyable as possible. 
Okay, so it's so it sounds like it's a really broad scope that you're covering there. On one hand, it's uh, things that are not basically part of the app bundle. These are things that support you during development. Mm -hmm. And then there are things that become part of your app bundle or are used by your app bundle as a backend. And uh, so you have libraries and you, you have backends. And this is, this is basically your all-in-one solution if you don't have your own backend or if you don't want your own backend, or is this just something else to use? So, I mean, you, you can combine your your services. So for example, if you just want to use Firestore to, to store some data, but you want to use other services to, um, I don't know, uh, fulfill other needs in your application, that's totally possible. Um, and, or maybe, you know, you, you need, um, a serverless compute platform, then you can use Cloud Functions, and from there you can access all sorts of APIs that you're interested in. And that's actually something that we've been working on pretty intensely in the past couple of um, months. Um, we have um, a module that is called Firebase Extensions, and mm -hmm. Firebase Extensions essentially are pre-built solutions for problems that you might run into um, again and again. So one good example that a lot of people might be familiar with is resizing images, right? So okay. um, user might take a picture, you upload the picture to cloud storage, and then you want to create thumbnails so it's easier for other people to see those images and um, not having to download um, the original resolution image if you just want to display it in a list. And okay. there is an extension which makes that um, straightforward. So you basically go into your Firebase project, install this extension into your project. It gets added to your backend project. You configure which collection it should listen to, which which um, storage bucket, and then which resolution you want to resize to. And then it installs a cloud function which listens to that bucket. And whenever you upload a new image, that image will get resized and then written back to a sub bucket where you can pick it up. Okay, so that sounds like I I can also write code that runs on the backend. That's correct. So okay. um, you and and there are multiple ways to do it, right? Because so if you just want to use Firebase, you would write a cloud function and you can use um, JavaScript or TypeScript to do that and run your your code in in the backend and we will mm -hmm. automatically scale that for you. Um, if you want to have more control, you could use any of um, GCP services such as Cloud Run and spin up your, your own containers, for example, and have them run on our platform and um, you know, integrate that with your with your application. So I you know, I, I often compare it to Firebase being um, um, an even more friendly interface into the Google Cloud platform, right? So Google Cloud has so many services. And if you go to the Google Cloud platform, it is easy to get overwhelmed with all the options and services. And in Firebase, if you go to the Firebase console, it's still a lot of services and options that you have, but we try to package it in such a way that is pretty straightforward to see what you can do and um, to, to make your choices easier. And we, we you know, we try to make it in such a way that it's easy to solve 80% of the problem without having to go into the weeds. Mm -hmm. And then 
if you if you do need to customize, it's still easy enough to to go the extra twenty percent. So that that's the backend side. So what what does the client side look like? So I've, I'm writing an app, um, and uh, well, I'm assuming this is not just for Android, right? Correct. Yeah. So we support the web, Android, and iOS, um, and Unity as well. Okay, and I saw that like for for the Xamarin listeners, there are also uh, wrappers around that that you can use. That's right. Um, although okay. I so I think Xamarin um, started wrapping our services and provide um, their components, and we we certainly are happy for them to do that. But there is no direct support for those libraries because they're, they're built by the Xamarin team, as far as I can tell. Okay. Um, but so that means there are libraries that I use as, as I include them as packages in my app code or my, my native app or whatever type of app I'm writing. And then I have functions that basically lead to HTTP calls or do they do like local persistence also on the device or what what's going on there? Yeah. So in terms of architecture, it's pretty interesting. So, you know, if you... If you build your application yourself and you you know you stand up your own backend and then connect your client to it, you might be used to having some sort of um, um, gatekeeping service, right? So mm -hmm. your your mobile application will call a, a backend API um, that will take care of authentication and authorization and all of that stuff, and then it will talk to a database somewhere and maybe some other services, right? So that's that's a usual approach for, for mobile applications. Mm -hmm. In Firebase, though, it is slightly different. So let's assume that you have an application. Let's take a canonical example. Let's take a to-do application, right? Because everybody knows how <laughs> You're to do You're a developer advocate, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's assume you want to store your to-dos and you have a title, you have a completion state, and maybe a due date. So you will create a document for each of those to-dos in Firestore, and you have a collection with all those documents in, in, in Firestore, and you use an extra attribute on, on those documents to uh, tell them apart. So you know that these documents belong to me, these other documents belong to Kerry. Mm -hmm. And then on the client, you will use the Firebase SDKs for your respective platform to talk directly to Firestore. And this is a huge difference to the architecture I described before, um, because instead of going through this gatekeeping server, which then talks to database, your client will talk directly to your NoSQL database. And that's a huge uh, departure from what people might be used to. Mm -hmm. And the way um, why this is secure and why um, you can feel comfortable doing that is that you know for one we need to take off, off we need to take care of two possible um, um, security vectors here. One is you need to make sure that only users who actually own the data can see their own data, right? So I only want to see my to dos. You only want to see your to dos. Yeah. Except if we collaborate, right? So, you know, we might be on a team and we might want to share to-dos. But let's assume um, I want to, to, to make sure I can only see my to-dos. And we have something in place which is called security rules. Security rules is a little language that you can use to 
uh, very fine grainly specify who can do what with the data, right? So you can specify only people who are in this group, for example, may access data that is in this specific collection or only only this user may access the documents they created or um, only administrative users may delete documents or only um, you know only admins may change the creation date of documents and, okay. and things like that so this is this is the data um, data security part on this aspect of it and then you need to make sure that no malicious actor can attack your your backend right and hammer your 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 backend to drive up usage or try to extract data um, and you know part of that already is covered by security rules so if you have security rules in place nobody who's not permitted to do so can read the data but in terms of who can um, hammer your your database and um, um, try to drive up your bill, there is another thing that you need to put in place and that's called app check. So app check essentially is something um, where you use a service like app attestation to make sure that only your genuine app can access that part of your backend. Right. So even okay. if you, even if somebody was able to figure out the connection details for my Firebase project, they wouldn't be able to call the services in that project if their application is not um, attested via app attest. Um, and AppTech will reject any request they will send because it says, well, we don't know your application. Uh, it's not it's not authorized essentially to yeah. to call this API. So this is. You know, this is a high-level overview of how you might architect an, app, uh, an application if you just want to store data. And then, of, of course, you often need to perform some backend processing. So, for example, um, what I mentioned before, where you want to resize images or um, you want to do other things like updating data depending on some certain criteria and you need to perform backend processing. And you can use Cloud Functions to do that. So um, Cloud Functions can be tied to certain events and triggers. For example, you could run a Cloud Function whenever a new user signs up and run specific code, for example, to send them a welcome email or to set up uh, a couple of sample documents in, in, their, um, in their Firestore um, um, collection, for example. Okay. And there are a ton of triggers that you can use. So um, Cloud Functions can be connected to uh, Firebase Authentication or to uh, Firestore, to Cloud Storage. So whenever something happens in your database, you can trigger events and perform processing depending on, on the data or the event that took place. Well, the, the app attestation topic is a, a rabbit hole I have to resist diving <laughs> into. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, but you mentioned the uh, driving up the bill. What is the, uh, the, the licensing model here? Or what, what is Google's uh, um, model for, for generating revenue from this? Yeah, so we've got two um billing plans essentially so there is the free plan and then there is a pay-as-you-go plan mm -hmm. so if you're on the free plan 
as it says, everything is free, but there are certain limits. So, um, you know, if you go to firebase.google.com slash pricing, there is a table which tells you exactly all the details. Let me give you one example. So um, if you are thinking of using Cloud Firestore, then in the free plan, um, you can store one gigabyte of total data in the free plan. After that, um, you, you need to decide if you want to go for the pay-as-you-go plan. Um, and then in the pay-as-you-go plan, you will be billed an extra um, 10 US cents per additional gigabyte um, in terms of document rights, for example. In the free plan, you get 20,000 free document rights per day. Um, you get 50,000 document reads per day and 20,000 deletes per day. And after that, um, you know, you, you need to go into the pay-as-you-go plan, essentially. Okay. Yeah, that uh, sounds yeah, typical to have like a, a free tier. And if you really make, you're really making money with this, then it's okay to share some of that with the provider. Mm -hmm. But something else, well, when you were at Zulka, you were our iOS guy. And I was kind of surprised to see the iOS guy leave for Google. Um, so is, is this something you're still working on or is, do you still have a focus there? Yeah. So, um, it's, it was quite interesting. So when I joined Google, I joined a team that's called partner developer relations and mm -hmm. th that team is responsible for working with the top application developers out there. Um, so, you know, companies like Microsoft or Evernote, um, yeah. Facebook, you know, the, the, the well-known ones, but also, um, like smaller ones. So for example, um, one of the, one of the partners I work together with, um, is, um, no longer very small, um, shopping list that you might be well aware of, um, the, the guys from bring. So when I started working with them, they, they had like just a couple of thousand installs on Android. And then, mm -hmm. um, as we continued working with them. They, they were able to to drive up their installs to um, you know a good coverage of the market. So and they're they're all also all former colleagues of ours. That's right. Yeah. Um, so that that was the connection there. For for those uh, outside of Germany, I'm I'm assuming or, or the the German language. I I don't know how how far this this is uh, spread, but it's a very popular shopping list app from Switzerland. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so you know that um, on that team, I, I helped um, developers like bring or to do is to to build better apps based on based on Google technology, and that was not only just you know Chrome or Android, but our SDKs are available for all relevant platforms. Mm -hmm. So um, you know you you get most of Google's APIs for iOS as well, and of course, Firebase as a platform needs to be where all the developers are and um, needs to support all platforms that are relevant. So obviously, we need and want to support iOS. Um, and being an iOS developer at heart and um, huge fan of Apple's hardware and also their, their platforms, it was a no-brainer for me to say, well, um, I have some background in iOS development. And the Firebase team is looking for uh, a developer advocate. 
Um, so that was back in 2019. They were looking for somebody who, who was able to cover iOS. And I said, yeah, that's me. Um, and then I joined the Firebase team and I mostly cover the iOS platform, although I also look after um, a couple of other things. So for example, um, I've been I've been working um, with the Firebase extensions team, and that obviously has a huge part on, on the server side, but also a couple of client SDKs that we roll out to make it easier to use those services. Okay. And the the iOS developer landscape is is shifting. We we uh, when we first met, it was still all Objective C. Then they switched to Swift, and the new kid on the block is Swift UI. And I I hear you're working uh, intensely with that technology. That's right. Yeah. So the main reason why I got into Swift UI was that it makes building examples so much easier. Right. So if you want to demonstrate how to use Firestore, for example, it's so much easier to set up a sample application using SwiftUI because mm -hmm. there's a lot less ceremony around, for example, driving a list view, right? So in, if you want to drive a list view in UIKit, then it's you know several lines of code, like probably 50 lines of code or even more that you need if you just yeah. do the basics. And with SwiftUI, it's essentially it's three lines of code, right? Maybe mm -hmm. two even, depending on if you count the closing brace. And that makes it so much easier to talk about the technology that you want to transport instead of like getting lost in all the ceremony of the, the platform that you, that you are running this on. So it was a no-brainer for me to say, well, instead of using UIKit and Objective-C to talk about the services that we want to talk about, I'll just use SwiftUI. And when I joined the team in 2019, SwiftUI was still very, very young. And um, all of us were only getting started with understanding how it works and how to architect your applications. And I played around with it to understand how it works, how you can build your applications, and how to integrate with Firebase. And I built an application which is coincidentally a to-do list application called Make It So. <laughs> and uh, in 2020, I think I, I released the first version of that as a sample. It is an attempt at replicating Apple's Reminders app. So okay. it's not only uh, a tool to, to show how to use Firebase services inside of an iOS application, but it's also an attempt at understanding what you can do with Swift UI if you if you can build um, a deceptively simple looking um, productivity application for uh, Apple's platforms and um, you know thanks to Swift UI being cross platform in you know <laughs> which in Apple's terms means <laughs> it runs on on the watch on the phone uh, on the tablet on the TV and on your Mac. Um, that is an interesting uh, additional challenge, right? To make sure that although what you built might run very well on an iPhone and also uh, might look okay-ish on an iPad, to make it look great, you still need to do a lot of um, you know fine tuning and tweaking here and there, mm -hmm. um, deciding uh, which parts of the UI need to be uh, you know 
where you need to spend some extra work to make sure that a list looks great if it takes up more space on the right hand side of your iPad, for example, and you know things don't look lost, for example. Yeah. So that that is pretty interesting, and most people might not be aware of even the the reminders app has a couple of things that are pretty challenging to to implement with swift ui so for example if you if you tap into the list of your um, reminders and then tap the enter key what happens is a new line will be inserted after the current line and that sounds like such a basic thing to do but yeah. in swift ui back then it was not possible to do this kind of focus management where you uh, where you create a new line in the table and then place the, the cursor into that. And I've only just like last week written an article on my blog about how to do that with the now current version of SwiftUI where it is possible, right? So Apple added new APIs for handling focus, but um, for some reason, the way they did it is mostly suited for very simple UIs where you only have a couple of fields. And I think what they they had in mind when they implemented it was things like a sign-up form, for example, or a form for, for inputting an address or something like that, where you have a number of, of um, input fields that you already know ahead of time. But if you are in a list and if you implement a to-do list application and you might have an unknown number of elements in that list. There is no no officially documented way to do that. Mm -hmm. And it took some time to figure out how to do that one. Um, and then the other thing is it's it only works in specific versions of iOS. So um, I, I found that it works it doesn't work on uh, on iOS pre fifteen dot one, I think. Oh, uh, and it, you know it's uh, so uh, currently it doesn't work on on physical devices, but it only works in the latest versions of the of the simulator. But there is hope that they will fix it for you know upcoming versions and um, hopefully also fix it for for any existing versions and um, yeah, uh, plug plug the holes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the reason why we weren't using SwiftEye as, as early adopters was this hard dependency on, well, only iOS 13 upwards. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, as new iOS versions are released, we're at 15 now. It's pretty easy to convince a customer now to not support before iOS 13 at this point, if they're not like a giant app who really have to support the entire population. Uh, so th that's not not a reason not to use Swift UI anymore, but I, what I'm hearing here, if you're struggling with a to-do app, <laughs> it and th this is typically not the, the most difficult uh, programming problem that you have to solve. If you have a, yeah, well, you develop an app for your for your company. So, where do you see SwiftUI at this point? Is it? I don't. I don't have numbers how many apps are are being developed with SwiftUI, but but. Is it at the point where there's no reason to use a UI kit anymore, or are we still do we still have to revert to that sometimes? So one, I, I you know I would I would like to say that um, it it might have sounded um, like I was trying to say um, you know even for a simple to do list application, um, Swift UI puts a lot of roadblocks in your way, and that's not true. So um, you know I was talking those things that I mentioned, which are hard, are probably. Uh, 
the polished part of it, right? So building mm -hmm. building a task list application with SwiftUI, that's totally possible and it's pretty straightforward. It's, uh, you know, um, I think it's just a couple of hundred lines of code that you need to do that. Yeah. Um, so the, the polish part, that's where um, currently is a little bit more challenging, but um, it is obvious that Apple is working hard on making this easier. And let me give you one example. So for example, last year, when you wanted to build a list and wanted to um, support swipe actions where you can swipe a cell and then have a couple of um, context sensitive actions for you know, deleting or uh, flagging or um, doing some other sort of context sensitive action, that mm -hmm. wasn't possible because they didn't support um, an API that would allow you to register swipe actions. The only thing they did support was swipe to delete, right? Okay. So if you wanted to support swipe actions, you had a couple of ways to do that. One is you could use a scroll view and a lazy grid to basically set up your table view yourself. So mm -hmm. basically re-implement the entire list yourself. And um, actually, I started doing that because I wanted to explore how to register swipe actions. I did um, get very far with that. Um, but I am super happy I didn't open source the project because at WWDC this year, Apple released Swipe Actions, and it is pretty straightforward to do that now. Mm -hmm. And this is an example that I like to use to tell people, well, SwiftUI is evolving pretty rapidly from year to year, and it's closing the gap to UIKit. So last year, there were still a lot of things that weren't possible and where you had to fall back to UI kit. And those things have been fixed mostly. And there, there might still be a couple of things that you can't do with pure Swift UI these days, but you can always fall back to UI kit. So you could write an application mostly using Swift UI these days. And then for the things where you realize I have this very specific thing that I want to do, and it's not possible in Swift UI. You can still go and use UI uh, view controller um, representable to okay. uh, to use Swift. Uh, sorry, to use UI Kit to implement that part of the functionality um, in your application, and have this kind of hybrid app that is mostly Swift UI and partly UI Kit. Also because a lot of the UI controls actually are implemented um, as UI kit elements under the hood, what you can do is use um, a library like, um, I, I think it's called Introspect, where um, they expose a couple of additional view modifiers that plug all those holes that might still be there. And what they do is they um, dive in and find the UI kit control that is backing your Swift UI element and then <laughs> allowing you to modify that. I'm trying to stay away from that as much as possible because yeah. Apple might decide to change the implementation under the hood um, without yeah. giving notice. And you know, they always they never make any claims as to how stuff is implemented under the hood. Mm -hmm. So you're you're living a dangerous life if you're using uh, introspection. But on the other hand, I you know I. Um, maybe it is because I'm a developer advocate at Google and, you know, I, I always am interested in, you know, hearing back from people how we can improve our um, APIs and SDKs. And I think the same should hold true for Apple, right? So I, I'd rather expose to Apple 
hey, here are a couple of things that don't work. Um, and here is how the community is struggling and um, make that visible to them, for example, on Twitter or by filing feedbacks or by writing uh, blog posts. And I, you know, I, I, I am pretty sure the Swift UI team is listening very closely to what the community has to say. And they take this feedback to heart and they will, they will implement uh, what's still missing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I see so many parallels to uh, to Xamarin Forms. Um, I, I don't know how deep you are with that with that technology, but it, I mean, when it was released, it was it was okay for writing like your your line of business app uh, for your own employees, uh, no problem. And as soon as you start, uh, you want to tweak it a little bit, make it a bit nicer, then you had to dive deep into the underlying technology and uh, they might have changed the same same thing uh, they might be changing the implementation they might use a different control to represent this Xamarin forms element for example and then you had the, the dependency on on that so and as time went by more and more things became possible with Xamarin forms so we're now at a point where you, you can totally recommend it for any types of app and uh, I think SwiftUI is, is at that tipping point uh, too right now. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's um, you know when when a new technology is released, it's always uh, this point where you need to figure out is it worthwhile investing time into learning it, and then do I actually want to um, build an app um, using this technology? And I've seen more and more apps, mostly by indie developers. Um, who actually use pure Swift UI to build pretty amazing apps mm -hmm. and are very successful doing that. On the other hand, I've uh, I've also seen people struggling with some bits of it, and I sometimes wonder, is it a real problem? And it might well be, but sometimes it might be that people are trying to trying too hard to apply stuff they know from UI kit to to the Swift UI world. And yeah. things are different, right? So just just one example is if you if you are in a view on on a screen and you want to if you want to open a dialogue or you want to to open a sheet and, and, and stuff like that. It feels very strange in Swift UI in the beginning that instead of making an imperative call saying, hey please open this dialogue what you do is you flip a, a switch on a boolean attribute um, on your on your view model or um, on a state variable, mm -hmm. and this is bound to to a part of your UI which says I'm going to be visible when this is true, right? So this feels yeah. weird in the beginning, but it becomes second nature once you've done it a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. And so for the Firebase story, are, is there something you're doing there to support Swift UI specifically? Yeah, we've done a couple of things. So um, you you might know that SwiftUI uses this concept of view modifiers to configure your views. So you can, for example, use a view modifier to specify the font you want to use on a label or mm -hmm. the color of a button and things like that. And we've done some work there, for example, to make it easier to integrate your Swift UI apps with analytics. So there is a view modifier that you can use to track if the current view has been um, 
made has been made visible to the user. That's okay. that's one example. Another example is um, revolving around Firestore. So if you currently want to use Firestore in Swift application, then what you usually do is you will implement a view model or a repository that will use what we call a snapshot listener to register to a Firestore collection to be notified of any changes in that collection. For example, if new documents show up in the collection or if there are any changes to existing documents. And writing a simple view model that connects to um, one collection, that is probably worth, I don't know, maybe 50 to 100 lines of code, depending on the error handling that you implement. Um, and we've recently had a contribution from um, the community to bring um, a property wrapper into the Firebase iOS SDK, which makes it a lot easier. And we work together with this contri contributor to bring it through our API proposal review, add a couple of features that we felt were necessary and make it a really nice and clean implementation. So now, instead of having to write those 50 to 100 lines of code yourself, what you can do is in your Swift UI view, use this property wrapper and attach it to a local variable to say, I want to subscribe to this Firestore collection over there to pull in all those changes, expose them on this, on this property in my view, and then connect this property, for example, to a list to display your to-do items. Cool. So you're saving a lot of implementation work, right? Yeah, and when I, you know, um, our API proposal process works like that. So you have a document where you uh, describe the use case, you and you show the before and after code. And uh, when I showed the before and after to my colleagues, their, you know, the reactions were amazing. They, uh, they, a lot of people said they, they thought their, they had their minds blown. Um, so. That was definitely something which saves a lot of a lot of lines of code. Another thing that we have done in the past is uh, implement support for Combine. So Combine is Apple's um, reactive framework mm -hmm. to um, you know to make um, event-driven, stream-driven uh, development easier, and that is something which is very well suited to um, to asynchronous APIs such as Firebase, right? So yeah. probably all or the majority of, of calls that you make to Firebase are asynchronous. And on Stack Overflow, you can see that people have a hard time, especially in the beginning, to uh, keep this in mind, right? So oftentimes on Stack Overflow, you will see people making a call and not registering a callback closure to get the result. And they expect if they make the call, the result will be there immediately, which obviously isn't possible because it's asynchronous. And with Combine, this will be a lot easier because you can set up your um, your pipeline to process um, any events asynchronously. So that's another thing that we added to the iOS SDK to, um, to keep up with um, the modern uh, additions to the Swift language. Oh, and also a nice, um, a nice um, side note here. Much, much of the Firebase iOS DK is written in Objective C, and that might huh. sound like a legacy, but it, um, you know, it was really beneficial 
when Apple recently released async await support for Swift, because what they did is they made sure that if if an Objective C method um, has a specific way to uh, to deal with um, an asynchronous result and has um, a completion block uh, that follows a specific pattern, they will automatically synthesize support for async await. So all of Firebase's methods are built this way. <laughs> so from day one, we were able to support well, almost almost all of our API calls for async await. There was only just one or two for, for cloud storage where um, the callback wasn't formatted correctly, and we added um, <laughs> two new methods to cover that. Um, but that was a really nice surprise. <laughs> cool. Yeah, well, I see the whole SDK is on GitHub. I will, I will link to that. I will also link to your blog. Mm -hmm. And um, so, but thank you so much for for telling us about this new or this this exciting te technology or new technology for some people. So, um, thank you for sharing your insights. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yes, th this has been another episode of Dev Talk, and we'll see each other again in two weeks. Bye bye.